This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Eva Glishic, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Kate Maloya about her new book, Taking the Soviet Union Apart, Room by Room, Domestic Architecture, Before and After, 1991. Kate is an assistant professor of architecture at the University of Utah, and her research examines the evolution of residential architecture, the politics of monument construction and demolition, how the collapse of the Soviet Union transformed urban dwellings, and housing insecurity. Kate, welcome to the show. Thank you, Eva. Well, first of all, Kate, can I call you Kate? Is that okay? <laughs> yes, that's that's perfect. Fantastic. Um, I was wondering if you can tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm from Kiev. I'm an architectural historian. I'm from Kiev, Ukraine, and... Um, uh, my earliest architecture education is actually from Ukraine, uh, and then I, I got my PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Currently, I work, like you mentioned, at the University of Utah as an assistant professor of architecture, so architecture throughout. Fantastic. Um, and now, your new book, Taking the Soviet Union Apart Room by Room, and I love the title. I really love this this uh, 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 framing that comes through the title already. Um, this work investigates the transformation of urban housing during the time of uh, perestroika and then in the first post-Soviet decades. How did you become interested in this area of research? Well, that, that has to do with me being from there and also the time when I was growing up back uh, in Ukraine. Um, to, to give you a, a frame, I was born in the late 80s, and through my entire childhood, my parents were remodeling constantly, <laughs> and I absolutely hated it as a kid, because I, I, I think there's nothing worse for a kid than being at a tile store or just uh, any kind of construction oh. tool store, <laughs> but that was my childhood, and then I somehow grew up to write about it. Um, essentially, I realized that that, uh, that that sort of obsession, societal obsession with remodeling apartments was part of uh, a bigger picture. It was part of a bigger process of rethinking uh, who post-Soviet urbanites were, um, rethinking their lived environments, rethinking cities even, just on a much smaller individual scale. And that was an essential part of the 1990s uh, back in Ukraine and also back in other post-Soviet countries. So although there are a lot of regional specifics to these things that were happening, it is pretty true that all post-Soviet countries, if they did not have immediate conflict going on, something more important going on, if they were sort of slowly getting out of the economic crisis, people were remodeling everywhere. So I, I really uh, love that lens of, you know, a small um, domestic 
kind of home improvement, right? Um, as a as a way to think about the, the this major kind of shift in, in social and political life of um across former Soviet Union. How do you study something like that? What are the sources that you use to to trace how these individual apartments um have been altered in post-Soviet years? I think that's probably the most important part of or the most interesting part of my work where I had to get creative to try to understand this because I had a lived experience of how it goes and also as a child. So I had to abstract from what I thought I knew about what was going on. Um, But uh, I arrived at trying to not use my own experience, trying to not turn this into an other ethnography of some sort, but instead to try to use other people's experiences. So I interviewed a bunch of people. I interviewed a lot of apartment dwellers from different generations about their experiences with remodeling and living in apartments. I also looked at archives pretty extensively, mostly uh, city archives that pertain to construction of new housing and then architectural archives permits construction permits uh, on the larger scale that would show the differences between how uh, buildings were designed, let's say, in the early 80s, in the late 80s, and then in the early 90s. Uh, And I also looked a lot at popular magazines and even TV shows. In the later 90s, TV shows were a great source of uh, information about how uh, people envisioned uh, remodeling their places. And this, I think that's where the that's where the process was very interesting for me, taking these three very different, very different types of sources and sort of triangulating them, interviews, uh, popular media, and then straightforward, normal archival work, as you would imagine a historian historian doing. Uh, and at those intersections, there were a lot of very interesting things. Um, the architectural archives in particular were sometimes somewhat hard to access because nobody else cared, or if they did care, they mostly cared for commercial purposes, namely remodeling. Because whenever you want to make any major change to a building, you need to find the original drawings, right? And I was looking at these original drawings as a historian only 20 to 30, uh, not even 30, 20, 25 years after all of these things have happened. And that was pretty early on. And, and uh, I don't think historians have looked at those archives yet, other than me. Yeah, um, Kate, I'm interested if you wouldn't mind reflecting on the process of research um, in the context of current situation. You worked in Ukraine and your work is really framed, you know, by, first of all, a pandemic and then... Um, waves of, of armed conflict in your country. Can you tell us what it means to work in those conditions for a historian? Well, I think I think I might actually start a tiny bit earlier than even the pandemic. Um, I started my my research and I started my I started I started my PhD program in 2011 and I had thoughts about these these this kind of project early on, but I probably did not start doing field work until 2013. And what's so important about that specific timing is that the, the small war in Ukraine, the first Russian invasion, started um, in 2014, in March 2014 and April 2014, and before that. I was seriously considering that I would need to do a lot of archival work in Moscow. The reason I was thinking that was because Moscow uh, was always a center of, of sort of design thinking and before the collapse of the USSR. So I thought that the portion of work that I had to do on prior 
to the collapse of the USSR in 1991, I would have to do in Moscow. And then I realized that a, as a Ukrainian citizen, I was not going to go to Russia after Russia started an aggression against my country. That's one thing. But also that I did not necessarily need to because thinking about these larger former empires, uh, you can conduct research not in the center, but at the, in the colonial subjects, essentially at the periphery. Uh, it does reframe it. Of course, you have to be aware of what you're doing. You have to be very clear that this is the kind of research that you're doing, not in the center, but at the periphery and understand the effects of that. But I actually found the effects of that extremely interesting and inspiring, let's say, knowledge exchange with countries outside of the Soviet Union within the socialist bloc that may have been more active at the so-called periphery, so in Ukraine, rather than it was in Russia proper. Um, and I also found a lot of other effects uh, that I thought were, at the end, I was extremely happy that I did not get a chance to work with the archives in the center and was able to actually work with the archives in an alternative location where people have not looked at those and understand how the processes functioned in different parts of the Soviet Union, just not in the not in the center. And I was still I still had access to popular media. So I suppose that compensates for lack of archival research uh, in uh, the center. And I'm now I'm a big proponent of this kind of work. I think a lot of work on the former Soviet Union and socialist blocs should be done outside of centers. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's really interesting how by force, right, your work was or research method was, was redesigned and you um, really go through that systematically in, in your book. And it's really, I, I think, helps to rethink some of the kind of um, uh, uh, common spots and common common uh, ideas, right, about about architectural history um, of this period. Um, now, I'm interested in uh, your view on two terms that you use throughout your book, right, or you rather open your discussion with uh, uh, thinking about two terms, a room, which is a basic unit of measurement for domestic architecture, and then remont or remodeling, uh, Tell us about these two terms and what they mean in the context of your, your research. Absolutely. Um, I think a room is very interesting, not just not just in the context of Ukraine or the former Soviet Union or post-Soviet world. A room is such a construct. It's not a given. You know, we think about a room as something that, uh, especially in Western societies, we think about a room as a normal way of explaining our places, not just in the U.S. where you, well, in the U.S. you actually have bedrooms. So you would explain your home by the number of bedrooms you've got. That's definitely not the case for the uh, former Soviet Union, where you explain your apartment by a number of lived rooms that includes everything other than the kitchen, the hallways, the bathrooms. So everywhere where you can live is a room, right? Uh, because people didn't have bedrooms back then. Um but uh, uh, generally speaking, when we think about the, the evolution of a human dwelling, right, throughout history, what we will find is oftentimes there was just one room and everything happened in this one space. And that space could have been completely flexible or it could have been zoned for uh, uh, eating in one part of it and for cooking in another part of it and sleeping in a different part. Or things could have completely overlapped in space where the space that was used for 
eating during the day would be used for sleeping at night. And we as humans have lived like that for, for thousands of years. And only relatively recently, we came up with this construct of a room. So I find it absolutely necessary to go beyond a room when we're looking at how we live, how people live. Uh, that shows so many things that otherwise we, we just we just don't notice because we put a label on it and did not think about it much. Uh, and I think it's necessary in any context. So when studying housing in the U.S., same exact deal. You must rethink what a room or a bedroom means. And with remodeling, I think what what really blew my mind when I started thinking about remodeling in Remont um, is that it became more than just fixing things up or beautifying your apartment or updating it, it became kind of a way of life in those uh, early post-Soviet years. Everybody was constantly remodeling. And because people oftentimes had pretty limited means, it would take forever. So people would live in that remodeling for years, moving from one room to the other. And first you pull piano to what used to be your grandma's room, and then the piano is in your room, and everything else is also there. This is my lived experience. And uh, furniture is always covered with plastic uh, to, to avoid dust, and so on and so forth. And that could last forever. So it's no longer just a project. It's your life now. Your life is all about beautifying your space, changing it. And in some distant point in the future, it'll be finished. Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? Maybe you're going to start another remodeling just as soon as you're done with the first one. Um, and I think that's a very, that's that's a sign of the times for a lot of the, the uh, post-Soviet world uh, in the first decade after 1991. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you you know this concept of remonto remodeling. It, it really, in a sense, defined the Soviet Union as a project. Like right? it's constantly under construction. It's constantly right. you know right. there's always this horizon yeah. that keeps <laughs> escaping us. And and that, in a sense, um, logic of remodeling and remaking and starting anew that that is uh, kind of never ending continues uh, following the collapse. But there's this motivation to change your uh, immediate surrounding, right? As things are falling apart. Um, around around Soviet citizens. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right about the Soviet Union. It's uh, the, the the entire motto of you know looking into the bright future. That's very much about remodeling. <laughs> one day you have to suffer now, and one day it's going <laughs> to get right. better. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe the during your lifetime, go back to the maybe. Room. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, and maybe um, it'll be a little cleaner and fancier. Yeah. But also, you you are right that it might. It I think. Part of it may have been that desire of control, at least over something. And when the world is so unpredictable, at least you have this ability to change your immediate surroundings. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Um, how did material culture and um, individual apartment style change after the collapse of the Soviet Union? Um, you talk a little bit about the types of goods that were available suddenly and sought after. Um, uh, by post-Soviet consumers. So, so what did a post-Soviet citizen desire for for his or her apartment? Right. Um, I, I I think 
Well, part of part of what I really avoided in my book pretty consciously was the conversation about style because there has been there have been some writings about style and they're pretty good. And uh, when it came to style, it would be some sort of a nouveau riche, uh, uh, pseudo quasi quasi European aesthetic, or rather how post-Soviet urbanites imagined what a European remodeling would be like or Western remodeling would be like. And that is definitely a material culture phenomenon. So there were all kinds of elements of luxury that uh, Soviets did not have. And it's not that Soviets did not have elements of luxury. They did, but those, the understanding of what the objects of luxury would be changed rather dramatically. And of course there was choice. But in terms of material culture, I think it's very helpful to make a distinction between uh, goods that became available to people that allowed for redoing the space versus goods that specifically worked as possessions and style objects. And um, within that distinction, the most important part is probably drywall to me. That belongs to the first category of goods that allowed people to change their space. Um, There was no no, uh, consumer drywall uh, easily available in the Soviet Union. It existed, but it was uh, distributed by the state to new construction sites, typically. Maybe somebody could get a hold of some in some mysterious ways, but uh, formally, you couldn't go to the store and buy some. What that meant is even if somebody wanted to move a partition, they it would be such a such a time-consuming project. They would have to build it up from wood, from kind of wood sheathing, which you still find a lot of those wood sheathed partitions in uh, um, post-Soviet apartments if they were not radically remodeled. But what drywall does, it makes building a partition really, really easy. So you can take down the old one and if you if you're a pro and you know what you're doing within a couple of days you're going to have a brand new wall um and that means that you can reformat your space however you can build bedrooms turn take them down uh, you know take down a kitchen wall do do whatever you want as long as you're not touching the load bearing structure and suddenly that that material became widely available to consumers uh, after 19 uh, after, really in 19 around 1993 uh, it was still important and then it became produced in, in former post soviet countries so it became cheap everybody could do it uh, and that dramatically changed the game suddenly re replanning the apartment was suddenly super easy this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Now, it's super interesting how that uh, such an um, item, uh, right, drywall, suddenly becomes part of this history, right, of, of, of remodeling and, um, yeah, yeah, in a, in a country that, that's kind of falling apart, but you can build up a drywall repartition and <laughs> things can look a little bit better. Um, now, now, your book is structured really as a tour of a, of a remodeled Soviet apartment, right, in a sense. And you open with these spaces designated for sleeping. You just know that bedroom is a bit of a problematic term in Soviet context. So so tell us about the bedroom. What is there a bedroom in, in Soviet and then post-Soviet uh, apartment? I would argue that in the Soviet Union, there's no bedroom. Right. Clearly, some people 
may have had a bedroom per se, but everybody else just had rooms where a lot of different activities took place. Uh, all of this depends completely on the Soviet idea of distributing apartments. Um, basically, uh, based on some Lenin's calculations of how much square footage you can, or square, how many square meters a person deserves, each person deserves, um, and also some of the calculations on how many rooms can a person have, uh, it transpires that that nobody, no regular person can ever have a room that's separately just meant for sleep. The formula that Soviets used was the number of rooms minus one equals the number of people or the other way around. So if you have three people in the apartment, you would have two rooms. Or if you have you know, two people in the apartment, you will have one room. Uh, and that room would end up uh, hosting all kinds of functions. It, it would be somebody sleeping at night. It would be homework. It would be dining sometimes on on, uh, on occasion. It would be um, whatever kind of domestic work you may want to do there, kids studying, grandma watching TV. And it completely just depended on the time of the day, really. Yeah, right. So it, the, 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 the function rotates, right? And the, what the room is, is changes over the course of the day. Yeah, absolutely. So a bedroom per se, where somebody just sleeps, makes their bed and then leaves for the day and exists within other parts of the, the apartment or the house is completely impossible. Even in rural areas, it's pretty impossible. And then... Um, since apartments were primarily distributed in the Soviet Union, or somebody could be a part of a co-op, but even as part of a co-op, people would not aim at getting a separate bedroom or would not be able to get a separate bedroom, right? But when the Soviet Union falls apart and you can purchase an apartment or rent an apartment, the entire situation changes because now you can realize all of your ideas about putting your sleep away. You could even build a little nook and that nook would only be a bedroom, Right. It would only serve sleeping functions. And what's so what was so fascinating to me when I first started this research, my assumption was that people really got into this bedroom business after the collapse of the USSR. <laughs> but now there are there there are, there's a lot of indication that people were interested in having separate bedrooms even prior to the Soviet Union falling apart. So the idea was in the air. Uh, people wanted that privacy of sleep. Mm-hmm but they were not necessarily able to realize that back then. And then as soon as the Soviet Union fell apart, everybody, every, and as soon as people made a little bit of money, they immediately tried to do just that. Right, that's interesting. Often, a priority, right? Like on top of the list is to mm-hmm. uh, separate to, that activity from from the rest of the, the apartment, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and uh, also this, a lot of Soviet apartments, because they were built in series, so the buildings that were designed once would be reproduced over and over and over and again, you are kind of able to look at trends, at large-scale trends, and make large-scale assumptions about how a lot of people lived from looking at just one plan. Uh, And a lot of Soviet apartments were designed in a way that a two-room apartment would have one walkthrough room and one dead-end room. And you would imagine, like, if you looked at this apartment right now, especially from a Western point of view, you would think that the dead end is a bedroom and the walkthrough is a living room. But really, somebody slept in the walkthrough room as well because it's two <laughs> rooms, so three people. So the third person is always sleeping in the walkthrough. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, 
Now, from communal kitchens to the famous kitchen debate between Nixon and Khrushchev, and um, the kitchen was always central to cultural and political life um, throughout the Soviet era. I mean, that's sort of kitchen is that mythical place, right, in in, in Soviet political and, and social life. What happens um, to the kitchen as a space for kind of domestic eating and cooking after the end of the Soviet Union? Does it lose its mythical? Um, space in, 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 in that collective imagination? Yeah, I don't think it does. Um, it, when you mentioned priorities with the bedroom, yeah. and I do think that bedroom was a priority, but I think kitchen was really the first priority. Right. <laughs> uh, people remodeled their kitchens so much and so happily and with so much effort and put so many resources in, into uh, remodeling kitchens specifically. Um, I think what happened is uh, the combination of these newly acquired resources and the Soviet love for the kitchen. Um, in the United States, I'm in the United States, so I use it as a point of comparison, and it's a very, it's it, it, it's a handy one. Um, in the United States, people don't usually eat within the kitchen if a kitchen is an enclosed space. If it's an open concept kitchen, then sure. But if it's a smaller enclosed space, people don't usually use it for eating, and they spend relatively little time prepping food in those smaller kitchens. In the Soviet Union, on, on the other hand, you had people eating in the kitchen constantly, socializing in the kitchen, uh, since the kitchen was one space where nobody slept. Mm. So you could really bring friends without too much notice, uh, have a small party in the kitchen, uh, or you could separate generations that way or whatever, right? And in 1991, that doesn't, that, that sense of a kitchen as being the hearth, it doesn't die out. It doesn't just disappear overnight. Um what happens instead is people try to actually expand their kitchens to make them bigger and more comfortable. And if you have a wall between the kitchen and the, the, the other, the next door room, right? The next room that is not a load bearing wall, that's not a structural wall, you could easily take it down and combine these two spaces. So suddenly you have this, this open, concept like space but really it's just a very big kitchen that allows for more comfortable cooking for um, more comfortable socializing and so on uh, the other thing i think about soviet kitchens is that they were all often very small if an apartment was built after 1955 or 1958 uh, and before the 1980s those kitchens were pretty small kitchens so the smallest ones could be as tiny as 4.5 square meters, uh, about uh, 50, a little under 50 square feet. Uh, the bigger ones were, you know, seven square meters. That was actually kind of nice. The In the smallest ones, you couldn't open the fridge without moving your chair. <laughs> um, yeah, so the table would have to be placed in the way where the, the chair and the, the chair would sit right in front of the fridge. Yeah. You'd pull it out. And then you'd pull out whatever you needed out of the fridge, put the chair back, sit back down. So there was a lot of this uh, uh, daily choreography, a little, yeah, little right. dance around the tiny kitchen in order to make it work. And of course, when people had a chance, they immediately expanded those kitchens. And then if the bathrooms were tiny, they had to bring washing machines into the kitchens. So the kitchen was just this multifunctional universe mm. where all of most of the daily routines 
happened. Um, hence, people put, put so much so, so much of their effort into kitchens specifically. And when you put so much effort into something, of course, you, you're going to keep hanging out and in that space. You want, to, you want to keep spending time there. I think the other thing that I don't really cover in the book, which may be important, is that heating was sometimes sporadic in the post-Soviet years. Uh, or the the uh, infrastructure, the heating infrastructure and electrical electrical infrastructure was so worn out that it the 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 uh, radiators would not radiate too much heat really, and what this means is that the kitchen becomes the warmest part of the apartment during winter. Uh, that's where you can you know endlessly boil tea and your your range is always on, and it's just warm and pleasant. So you would end up spending time at the kitchen that's relatively small, easier to heat up. Plus, you have the range doing the heating work automatically, and yeah, it would just be pleasant. Yeah, that's it's it's interesting that yeah the 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 centrality of the kitchen remains th throughout this this post Soviet period. And as you know in your book, there is no dining room in that sense in the in the context of Soviet apartment. Just the kitchen keeps expanding. Is right. if, if you can do that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's no dining room because you can't have an extra room for an extra function. You just you must dine in the kitchen or on occasion dine in the in that that walkthrough room or dine in one of the rooms. But generally speaking, yeah, kitchen is just everything. That's, everything happens in the kitchen. That's right. Um, apart from the kitchen, what are some of the other spaces in Soviet apartments and apartment buildings where people um, socialize, where they come together? Well. Uh, for big events uh, in the late Soviet years and uh, and it's actually throughout the Soviet history and even in early post-Soviet years, a lot of socializing happened in uh, one of the rooms, whichever room was bigger usually. Uh, again, it's still could, somebody could still sleep there at night, but uh, that would be the site for birthday celebrations, New Year's celebrations, whatever major events you had, um, because you couldn't fit that many people into a typical kitchen. Um, so whenever you had extended family over, the entire thing would just move to one of the rooms. Uh, a, a large table would get set up. Sometimes it was a folding table. The, all of the convertible furniture, Soviets were obsessed with it. And even post-Soviet folks too, because the apartments were still relatively small. Or, you know, some people would even put a large, uh, um, large plane of wood uh, on top of some kind of structure to create this bigger table. And then you'd, you'd have the entire family gathering around that larger table. And then adults would go to smoke in the kitchen. <laughs> that was always another <laughs> another way of separating um, separating celebrations. Uh, but yes, yeah, so, so when you have a space that's so relatively small, you must use it creatively. So it, it becomes a celebration space on, on special dates. But on the everyday basis, it's just everything else, every daily routine you've got in your apartment. Yeah, um, I absolutely yeah. love this. Uh, also, you mentioning this uh, convertible furniture and, you know, of course, Soviet obsession and from earliest kind of years of Soviet Union, some of the most avant-garde artists actually worked on on convertible uh, furniture as, as a, a central point in organizing Soviet domestic life, right, because of that, that space construction 
construction. Um, and I remember reading during the COVID pandemic how that came back into fashion because we were all using our rooms both for sleeping, for eating, as our offices, <laughs> as our educational spaces. So yeah, there's something to be to be yeah learned um, from that experience as well. Um, Absolutely. And if you if you think about future, there's not yeah, we're more and more people. We are likely to live in smaller and smaller spaces. So convertible furniture is definitely Absolutely. going to to be here yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> for both, a while. Both, uh, Soviet and post-Soviet lessons are, are kind of very important in that, in that sense. Now, your uh, tour of your, of, your, of your remodeled apartment kind of ends with the question of hygiene um, and the spaces that were designed for hygiene. So tell us a little bit about that concept and what happens with those spaces in a in a in a post soviet home improvement project yes of course the um i think the most important part is that people suddenly have access to new appliances or just to appliances altogether uh the other day i was thinking about the electric grid that was sustaining um sustaining all of these these soviet uh residential buildings apartment buildings and i realized that at some point before late 1950s, really there were no appliances planned into that electric grid at all. Uh, ranges were gas uh, or no electrical appliances. Ranges were gas and then maybe there were water heaters and those were typically gas too. But people in the mid-1950s did not have fridges, did not have washing machines, did not have, definitely not dishwashers, that just never happened. Uh, and really the electrical grid was just sustaining the light bulbs that, that's all it was. And then a little bit later on uh, in the late Soviet years, some people may have had washing machines, but those were the smaller portable ones, not the big stationary ones. Um, fridges, of course, became a thing. Most families had fridges towards the end of the Soviet Union. Uh, but otherwise, that was it. And then after the Soviet Union falls apart, suddenly stationary washing machines become a thing. There are no dryers still in Europe. It's an extremely rare thing, only in the US, I guess. I'm not sure about Australia, but um, and other places, but yeah, definitely yeah. not in European apartments. So um, you still have to fit the washer somewhere. And oftentimes that washer doesn't really fit in your bathroom. Uh, moreover, Soviet bathrooms were often split into two spaces, a lavatory and a bathroom proper. So you typically had that that wall between, you know, the toilet that was a separate room and the the bathtub plus sink room. And what people did oftentimes, they would de demolish that little partition and that would give them just enough space, killing that partition and killing a door, an extra door to the lavatory would give them just enough space to maybe fit in that washing machine that everybody suddenly had. And the washing machine is an absolute must, an absolute necessity. In uh, the context of post-Soviet housing, everybody thinks it's necessary. So either it goes there or it goes into the kitchen if your bathroom is too small and you can't do anything about it. Sometimes it was even in the hallway if you happen to have a hallway dependent on the type of the apartment you had but oftentimes that would be the the partition that would go away to fit the washing machine mm. so so it was um, again an opportunity to expand and restructure um, 
these spaces right these and spaces. and fit a new new uh, part of the material culture yeah. that was now easily available to everybody and also bigger than the its soviet um earlier counterparts right um i'm interested i've i've you know going through this process to to what point does your your memories you know as a child of this re constant remodeling make sense now having done this research or are your memories kind of different to to the research process that came came that all the conclusions that you came to through this through this process that's an excellent question in in my defense as an author <laughs> they don't make any they don't make any sense anymore i've everything changed all of my assumptions have been completely broken down into pieces um it turns out that uh, the apartment where i grew up and where my parents still live in kiev was one kind of an apartment just one type and that there are at least uh, uh three but really 20 more types that are completely common even just in one city alone and I did research in a couple of cities so with with all of those apartments in type in in, in mind my childhood experiences turned out to be just one case out of <laughs> possible 20 cases there are some similarities there are a lot of similarities between all of those cases and that's essentially where I was trying to arrive I was trying to construct you know a database of uh, possible scenarios and see what kind of similarities existed between these scenarios of how people remod how people lived and how people remodeled and there are a lot of similarities but there were a lot of things that were completely unexpected to me, and I'm glad that that I'm glad that that happened because that means that really I started with an assumption, mm. but that assumption was gone as soon as I started <laughs> doing field work. I realized that my assumptions helped me develop the interest right. in this subject, but that's it. That was the limit of where my <laughs> assumption led me. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, Kate, thank you so much for sharing. Um, a bit about your research and this really terrific project and taking us on this tour of a remodeled uh, apartment for all of us who love the uh, remodeling shows of all kinds on TV. This was a, a real treat. Um, before we let you go, can you tell us what are you working on at the, uh, at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for asking. I'm working on several things um, in, in in the context of the former USSR, but really mostly Ukraine. These days I'm focusing, focusing a lot on Ukraine in part because of what's happening. Um, I am currently preparing for publication. We're in very late stages. We're almost there. A book um, on Ukrainian mass housing with Philip Moiser, uh, Dome Archi or Dome Publishers, an architectural publisher in Germany, a fantastic publisher and with a fantastic resource on uh, uh, post-Soviet architectures and Soviet architectures in general. Um, the book that we're putting together, it was really an attempt to see how mass housing in Ukraine and really any post-Soviet state, former Soviet Republic, was specific to that former Soviet Republic rather than exactly homogenous and exactly the same as everywhere else in the Soviet Union. And what we discovered is that, of course, there were major similarities in approach because rules were set in the center. But really, there were a lot of very peculiar, very specifically Ukrainian things about the housing that was being built in Ukraine, because um, the Soviet Union had several major housing design institutions. Ukraine had its own housing design institution, a couple, one major, a couple more that were slightly more minor. And they 
designed a lot of the housing that was built in Ukraine, not some center in Moscow. So essentially, we were trying to build up this database of what kind of housing types are uh, present in Ukraine, were built through the 20th century from uh, the 1920s all the way to now. We kind of took this 100 years. And the hope was that this kind of database would uh, um, serve somebody who has interest in in Ukrainian housing under attack, somebody who has interest in post-war restoration and reconstruction. Reconstruction is already happening right now, despite the fact that the war is still ongoing and but you have to you have to somehow restore buildings that were damaged by Russian missiles. People have to live somewhere. And uh, um, hopefully in the future, Hope if Ukraine wins this war, which I, I very much hope Ukraine does. Um, a lot of Ukrainian cities that are currently under occupation were damaged to a point that uh, old housing cannot be restored. But what can you learn from that old housing? So that's one project that we started practically as soon as the war started, put it together. Now this is about to get released, this catalog of what housing exists in Ukraine. And then the that's about urban housing, though. And I'm just now starting another project that I'm, I hope is going to be quite important too, cataloging rural housing. It, the rural housing has barely been looked at. Right now in Ukraine, there's this wonderful initiative by um, um, an architecture bureau uh, that is uh, chaired by Slava Balbek um, to uh, collect um, types of Ukrainian rural folk housing. Uh, and they have an entire, it, it seems like they have an entire crew of volunteers basically documenting folk house, vernacular, Ukrainian vernacular in rural areas because rural areas have been damaged dramatically as well. I'm more interested with my sort of focus on the Soviet-built type mass-built housing. I'm more interested in rural mass housing built by the Soviets. So um Next or this coming summer, I'm going to Ukraine to document that, essentially to document these mass-built Soviet rural types, something that I haven't done before, but I think it's very important right now when villages are being wiped out and some kind of reconstruction will have to take place. And what can we learn from what's already there? Is it valuable? Should it be rebuilt? If it should be rebuilt, how should it be rebuilt? What can we understand from how people lived for decades, really? So that's my work that is sort of a logical continuation of um, what I was doing there with this first book that came out of my dissertation. But now, as the circumstances have changed so badly, I think just documenting, having, having things cataloged is what is currently important to me, making sure that if we can't preserve the physical structures, we can at least preserve the knowledge about them. Um, yeah, as, as with any war, that seems to be extremely important. Yeah, of, of course. I mean, the question of housing is, is so critical globally. And even in, in uh, um, Australia, where I, I uh, live, the question of housing and housing shortage is basically uh, political issue number one, let alone in, in a currently in, in, in Ukraine under conditions of war, the question of construction and reconstruction and where people live and changes to people's um, dwellings is is of highest possible urgency. So thank you very much for sharing that with us and really best of luck with your research. And I hope you will be back on New Books Network to share again your work with us. Thank you so much, Kate. I would love to. Thank you. Thank you, Eva.